You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, hey, Northway Church, so good to be online again with you here this week. Uh, if you're jumping on for the very first time here at Northway, my, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here. I'm so grateful you're with us. We are in week six of a summer series we're doing in the in the book of Psalms, Summer in the Psalms, real creative title, we've called it there. And we have been looking at a variety of human experiences through the Psalms and what it looks like for us to bring all of us to all of God. We, we've seen a number of experiences, what it means to, to walk in the dark night of the soul and bring that to God, what it means to walk in fear and anxiety and bring that to what it means to, to bring um, even, our, even our dependence upon God's word uh, unto him for life and living. I mean, all these things, we've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I gotta tell you, this week, we're actually gonna look a little bit more of the ugly and what it means to bring the darker side of ourselves to God for his healing and reconciliation. So if you've got a Bible with you, would love for you to turn with me to Psalm 51. And then maybe while you're there, hold your place as well in Psalm 32. These two Psalms, many, if you've been around the church for a while, may be familiar with this text. We are gonna look at this, one of the stories of one of the greatest leaders that we see in the Old Testament, and we're gonna zero in on one of his greatest failures and really the lowest point of his life as we look at King David and his response after his affair with Bathsheba. And so we're gonna see this here in Psalm 51 and into 32. And you know, one of the things that I am confident in saying is that when it comes to um, our humanity, what we have in common as finite and fallible human beings is that it is guaranteed that as long as we're in this flesh, we are going to struggle with sin. And it is not a matter of if, but it is a matter of when you and I are gonna blow it, when we're gonna make some incredibly bad mistakes that are going to offend God, are going to offend our fellow brother and sister. And there are gonna be moments in our lives when we are gonna compromise in such a way that's gonna lead to a very hard fall in our life. And the bigger question in there is what are we going to do when that happens? How will we respond? And there's a number of opportunities of response in that. We, we can choose to ignore uh, our actions and ignore our failures and act like they don't exist. But the truth is, and we know this biblically speaking and experientially, sin has consequences. And like any fruit, it's just a matter of time before it'll surface. So you can ignore it, but it will find us. We can also choose to try to hide it. We can cover it. We can, um, we can try to deny it and, and really disguise it uh, in such a way that we can try to fool others that it exists. And we see this with even our forefathers in the garden of trying to hide and cover themselves from the sin that they committed. But the truth is, is that even though you can fool a number of people around you, we cannot fool God. God sees everything. And even if we can fool others around us, we're gonna carry the weight of the consequences of our sins. We're gonna carry the guilt and we're gonna carry the shame deep within us. And so that really leads us to really only re one response that the Christian is to have towards failure in our life, towards sin in our life, and that is to own that sin and to bring it into the light, to not hide it, but to confess it to God, 
to bring it before him and plead for his mercy and his forgiveness and ask for his cleansing and restoration in our lives because our God is a God of love and a God of mercy and a God of forgiveness. And you're not gonna see a greater example probably in your Old Testament than that of King David. Now, for those who maybe aren't familiar with this story, just a quick overview. King David started out as a young shepherd boy. Um, he was the youngest of eight uh, brothers and he, he uh, was quickly exalted by God to become one of the future kings over Israel. After his defeat of Goliath, uh, he is eventually anointed as king and ends up leading uh, in a very prosperous time of Israel's kind of history into the birth of their nation. And, and David leads that effort. And he is eventually known as a, a man after God's own heart. It's a beautiful story. Until you get to 2 Samuel 11, and then the, the whole narrative switches. 2 Samuel 11, the opening line in 2 Samuel 11 is that it was springtime, the time when all the kings go to war and David was at home. And if you're a Jewish reader that was reading that for the first time, you would know something is deeply off. The time when the kings are supposed to be out defending their countries, David's at home. Something's not right. And then the very next verses unfold. David awakes in the middle afternoon. He gets up off the couch. He strolls out onto his balcony and looks down and notices a woman bathing in the house below him. And then he gets his servant to call for her to come up. And you're just like, no, I mean, this, this is like one of those stories in a, in a horror movie where you're begging the person not to go in there. Even the Geico commercial that gets it so right of the people running from the dude with the chainsaw and they go, let's go hide in an abandoned house. And you're like, no, okay, let's go hide in a cemetery. No. And as you read this story, you're just going, David, no, what are you doing? It's one compromise after another. But that again is proving the deception of sin that everybody else can see it but us. It blinds us to our own reality. And David keeps progressing. He invites this woman over who's a married woman, and then he lies with her. And David commits adultery, and he thinks he's gotten away with it. He can send her back home. Nobody's gonna really know until he finds out she's pregnant. And now he tries to cover this up. And so he, he brings her husband, Uriah, who's out fighting on the battlefield where David should be, brings him in and tries to get him to lie with his wife so it can look like that's his kid. But he has too much integrity, he won't do it. So David then tries to get him drunk. So then he'll lie with his wife and then can own this child. And, and he still has enough integrity to not do that. He, he sleeps on the floor. And so David ultimately does the unthinkable. He has Joab, his kind of military general, to orders him to send Uriah to the front of the battle lines where he most assuredly will be killed and thus he, he does get killed. And it's just this awful, awful story. At this point, David thinks he's gotten away with it. He then takes Bathsheba as his wife, is rescuing, uh, rescuing this widow and a whole year goes by and David thinks he's fooled everybody until 2 Samuel 12 comes. And God sends in the prophet Nathan. And Nathan, many of you may know this story, Nathan shares this fable to David about these two individuals. One was a really rich guy and he's got a lot of animals, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, a herd in his flock. And then you've got this one guy that, that doesn't have any animals other than one, one little ewe lamb that he's raised and nurtured his whole life. And then a visitor comes to town and they wanna show hospitality. And the rich man, instead of sacrificing one of the many 
uh, animals that he has for dinner, he goes and takes by force the ewe lamb of this poor guy and sacrifices it. And Nathan goes, what do you think about that, David? To which David in anger goes, man, that guy deserves to die for what he did. And one of the most famous lines in the entire Old Testament is when Nathan then looks at David and says, David, you're the man. You're the guy in the story. And he's busted in that moment. And so all of a sudden, um, David has his sin exposed. And, and here's the crazy thing. I mean, if social media was around in David's day, like you would never hear another thing about David. I mean, here's a guy that uses his position and power and platform to abuse others. Like that is intolerable. And if social media was around, I mean, no doubt he would have been shelved in an instant. But David, in this moment, he could have uh, entertain some of those other options. He could have run. He could have continued to try to cover this up. But for the first time we see in this whole narrative, David is going to get honest, no matter what it may cost him. And he comes before the Lord. And the fruit of what he does is Psalm 51. David's brutally honest confession. And this is why we love the Psalms, bringing all of us to all of him, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And David brings the ugly right here before God. And he records this confession and this repentance and, and Psalm 51 that is such an encouragement to us of what it looks like to repent and confess when we fall and seek the grace and the mercy of the Lord. And then what you'll get after that is Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is another Psalm David writes immediately after he's been forgiven by the Lord. So these two kind of always go hand in hand, but we're gonna start Psalm 51. I wanna show you four primary movements that you're gonna see in Psalm 51 that really instructs us of what it looks like to be a people of confession, to be a people of repentance when we sin. Four things you're gonna see. One is an ownership of our sin. The second thing you're gonna see is a plea for rescue that you can't provide for yourself, but that you need from God. The third thing you're gonna see is a receiving of forgiveness, actually receiving it. And then the fourth thing we'll see is a response. We might call it repentance, but a response of praise and proclamation over his sin and over the mercy of God. But let's look at this first one, full ownership of his sin. Psalm 51, and I'm gonna kind of move in a different order here, but start in verse three. I want you to see the brutally honest confession of David. David says to God, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. That's not what we heard in 2 Samuel 11. It was denial of those transgressions, but here I know them, they're before me. And he confesses in verse four, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil. And he names it evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Notice what David does not do here. He does not try to hide the sin. He doesn't try to blame shift. There's no, the, the devil made me do it. Or if you know, she should have had her window closed and none of this would have happened. There's none of that going on here. No justification of self, simply an ownership that sin is what did this. My own sin, sin that has been innate with me since the moment I came into this world. But in this moment, I yielded myself to it rather than yielding myself to you, oh God. See, true confession True confession for the believer is 
agreeing with God on what God defines as sin rather than trying to get God to agree with our definitions. That's where confession starts, is I agree, you call this unholy, it was unholy. And David confesses that. That's why it's so important for us to know the word of God so well that we know what God means by what God has said, rather than allowing our culture, our own sinful interpretations to try to twist God's word to make it say what we want it to say. And that's the same trap that happened from Genesis 3 on of the enemy trying to twist God's words and Adam and Eve buying into that twisting because it pleased their own cultural moment of the day, their own feelings in their flesh of the moment. Instead, we have to be a people who know God's word so that when we are unaligned from it, we can know what it means to confess it so that we might find realignment with what God desires. Now, also understand here what we see with David is that true confession begins with God and God alone first. David says, against you and you alone have I sinned. Now, all of us would agree. No, David sinned against a lot more people than just God. He sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah, Joab, Nathan. We could go on down the list of who David sinned against. But theologically speaking, understand this, that, that ultimately all those humans that David sinned against, they were humans that are made in the image of God. And so to undignify a human human image bearer, to offend a human image bearer is ultimately to offend God. It's to undignify God. And David understands that first and foremost, my sin is a transgression against him and his defined boundaries of what is holy and unholy. And I have done so. And David does this. But also one thing I want you to see here is that David understands that true confession, true repentance can't just be external fix-its. Oops, I made this mistake and I want to do it. I do that truthfully known confession here. I do that in my marriage all the time. I, I end up unwittingly or unknowingly hurting my wife. And rather than just understanding the, the hurt within, I just simply want to correct it really quick. Let me do something external, patch this thing up so you won't be mad at me and we'll fix it. No, there has to be a sense in which understanding the first work that has to be done is internal. Notice how David confesses that in both verse six and in verse 16 through 19. David says in verse six, behold, God, you delight in the truth, in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. That's where you're counseling me. He says in verse 16 and following, for you don't delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would just bring it to you. If all God wanted was just me to sacrifice uh, uh, an unblemished lamb right now, and, and that's it, we're good. I just do that. But I realize the real sacrifice that you're after, David says, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, that's not what you're gonna despise. God isn't after cheap external offerings. God right now isn't after some cheap 280 character tweet followed by a hashtag as just our only offering of contrition. God isn't after some two weeks of visiting a church because we feel like that'll placate the guilty conscience that we have and everything will be made new. No, what God is ultimately after is not penance. We're somehow trying to purchase the favor of God. What he's after, the only prerequisite God has that will lead us towards this transforming grace is a heart-wrung brokenness over our sin and over that which has transgressed God's holiness. 
That is, that is one thing that God for sure will not despise is when we come honest about our sin and broken over it. And that's where true confession must begin. But also understand here, David doesn't just end there with just confession. It then moves to a plea for rescue. And this is the beautiful part about David's understanding is that what he needs ultimately as a solution for what's happened, he has no way of repairing himself. He needs God to do the repair. And so there's a plea for rescue. You see this in verse one and two, as well as in seven through 12. Listen to what he's pleading for. Verse one and two, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He goes on in verse seven and following. He says, purge me with a hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. There's four things, four aspects of rescue that David asks for in there. He asks for mercy, forgiveness, for cleansing, and for restoration. And these are very important in what we're asking God for in the midst of our own sin. The first two, mercy and forgiveness, is really a rescue from God from the just wrath of God, from the just consequences of my sin against God. Mercy and forgiveness is what we need in rescue from God. But the second two, cleansing and restoration, is asking a, a rescue from self, from the sin that so easily entangles me. And these are huge aspects of our own rescue. When it comes to mercy, you see that in verse one, have mercy on me, O oh God. The Hebrew word for mercy there simply means favor. Have favor on me, God. Have pity on me, O God. And that word can be translated a number of ways in the Hebrew. It can mean grace of giving me something that I don't deserve, which in this case would be allow me to keep living. Or it can be translated mercy, as we would understanding of withholding something that I do deserve, which is the penalty of death in this situation. Now, it's the innocent victims in our culture right now who are crying out for justice, who are crying out for vindication, for help and rescue of areas that they're not guilty of, but have been punished for or oppressed for. But it's not so in this case. When it comes to the criminal, when it comes to the one who is actually guilty of the crime, there is no other plea you can have. You're not crying for justice here. That would be your own death. What you're crying for is mercy. It's the only thing that we've got is to call upon the unconditional favor of God to come and, and have pity on us and uphold us from what we deserve. There, but there's more to this rescue here than just the being rescued from the, uh, the uh, executioner's chair. Notice there's also a rescue of clearing one's record of guilt and of debt. David asked for forgiveness also in verse one and in verse nine, when he says, blot out my transgressions, 
Blot out my transgressions in verse one. Verse nine, hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. The word blot out means to wipe away or erase in full. It was often used in Hebrew literature of what it means to strike a record from a letter or a book. Like this, this record wasn't accurate, so get it out of here. And in this situation, David understands he has crossed a boundary. He has transgressed the holiness of God and what he has done. And this charge of adultery and murder are now forever pinned to his record. And he's asking the Lord right here, pleading that his record would be clear, that his debt would be forgiven, that he could be right before God. And, but I want you to notice, he's not just asking for the stains of his sins to be erased as if nothing had ever happened, but, but he's also asking for something new. And this is where it shifts from just God have mercy on me and forgive me, make me right before you. But God, I actually need something deeper. I don't just need the, the penalty to go away. I need what's in me to go away. And he pleads for now cleansing and restoration. You see the cleansing in verse two, verse seven, and verse 10. Verse two, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. And, and verse seven, purge me from this hyssop. Uh, hyssop is a plant that was used in the atonement where they dip it in blood and sprinkle it on the altar seven times to, to, to cleanse one from their sin. And he's purged me from what's within me. He says, created me in verse 10, a new heart. Give me a new heart. We have a term for this in the New Testament called regeneration. I need you to take this dead heart within me. And I need a, not just a second startup at this heart. I need a brand new heart. I need a total cleansing. David wants to be changed. It's not just the absence of sin in his life that he wants, but he wants the presence of holiness to encompass him. And we know this is something he cannot obtain on his own. David confessed in both Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 that there is no one who can do good. No, not one. So this cleansing that he needs can't come from within himself. It must come from God. He's pleading for it but he's also pleading for the ultimate purpose of that cleansing is so that he could be restored to God in relationship. And you see that restoration play out in two areas that David speaks of, a restoration of joy and a restoration of his relationship and standing with God. The joy we see in verse eight and 12, when he says, verse eight, let me hear joy and gladness over the bones that you have broken. David confesses in Psalm 32, that when he kept silent about his sin, he says his bones were wasting away within him, like withering from the, the heat of the noonday sun. He just withered. When, whenever we keep silent about our sin, there is an internal shame and guilt that weighs on us. It literally sucks the joy out of us. You can go on and try to live life like normal, but when you know that you've transgressed, if you're sensitive to it as we should be, it withers us. And David confesses that his bones were breaking over this. That's how deep within him this was going. He's asking for a restoration of joy all the way down into his bones. Restore that joy that I have over the salvation that you provide. But also he's asking for a restored relationship with God. You see this in verse 11, when he says, cast me not away from your presence. Like, I don't, I don't wanna be untethered from you. I want to be with you. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, we got to do a little work there because 
In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was temporary and limited on God's people. We see this with King Saul. We see it with Samson, where the Spirit would come upon somebody, empower them. But if they had unchecked sin, oftentimes, like you saw with both Samson and Saul, the Spirit would depart. Different in the New Testament, with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that, that remains and abides and, and become, we come, become the temple of God where he dwells. But David in this context is asking here that God, I, I don't want my sin to separate me from you. I wanna be in close relationship. I need your presence. I need that intimacy. I need that empowerment. And for the last year, I have felt so dry. I have felt so distanced because of my hidden sin. And David wants that eradicated and only God can do that. And so he's pleading for rescue here, for mercy, for forgiveness, for cleansing, for restoration. And notice the basis by which he's asking for that rescue. He's not basing it on his own merit, his own qualifications. He bases it in verse one on two things, the steadfast love of God and the abundant mercy of God. The steadfast love of God, that's that term we looked at a few weeks ago in Psalm 23, hesed, means the loyal love of God, the unconditional love of God. God, I'm asking for rescue, not because I deserve it, not because I've done anything to merit it. I'm asking it not on the basis of my character, I'm asking it on the basis of your character. You are a steadfast loving God who's made unconditional promises to his people. And I'm pleading that on the basis of your character, you would grant this rescue, not mine. And then the abundant mercy of God. That's actually a different word, by the way, mercy, that's used at the very beginning of the same verse in verse one. It's another word that literally means tender compassion. Because I know this to be true about who you are, God. Despite what so many people read into the Old Testament, that God is this wrathful God. No, God's a just God. But there's actually more accounts of God's relentless forgiveness, of his tender compassion towards his people, even when they rebel against him how he longs to to use discipline to bring them back because he loves them. And David's appealing to that basis. Now, here's the amazing thing. God heard this prayer. God grants David what he asked for. This criminal who deserved death and separation eternally, God actually grants him this rescue. And you don't really see the transaction there in, in, in Psalm 51. It actually occurs probably between verse 12 and verse 13 but we see it in Psalm 32. Hold your place in Psalm 51. Flip over to your left here a few pages to Psalm 32. And this again is David's response after he made this plea and what he experienced when God granted it. Look at this, starting in verse one and two, and then you see it in verse five of Psalm 32. David says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David goes on to say in verse five, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And that's Psalm 51. And here's what God did. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And church, don't miss that. This is the beauty in the confession and repentance process of not only pleading for rescue, but when it's actually granted by a merciful God, us actually receiving it, taking the free gift of God that he gives us and embracing it 
And, and, and that's, notice it wasn't in Psalm 32, it wasn't just his sin that was forgiven. He says, you forgave the guilt of my sin. Oh, how beautiful that is. Because it's the guilt and the shame that David had been walking in for a year as he hid his sin. And God not only cleansed from the penalty of sin, he cleansed the very guilt, the very shame that David was carrying. Nothing drives shame and guilt away um, from our hearts, like knowing that you have been forgiven by the Father and are delighted in by the Father. You're not just tolerated by God, you're delighted in when he forgives you. Now, understand this, there are many in our day, especially in our justice-seeking day, who would go, great, I can identify with David, he messed up, he's sorry, he's genuinely broken and wants to be freed. And anybody can identify with that once you've messed up. But at the same time, let's not minimize what David did used power to abuse men and women, had a brother murdered, stole a man's wife, committed adultery. There must be justice for that. And you can't just simply let this go. You can't simply just pass over that and go, okay, debt's canceled, you're forgiven. There has to be consequences. And to be fair, there were consequences. David would lose the child that he had with Bathsheba as a consequence to this sin. David's reign in his kingdom would never be the same again. There are always consequences to sin. But others would go, no, but there has to be justice because what kind of judge, what kind of just judge or just God would simply just turn a blind eye and not actually execute the penalty for that crime? That's what we're crying out for in much of our culture today is we want justice. We don't want to wink at it. And so what about God in this situation? So you need to know a couple things. One, David really did receive forgiveness. He really did receive the mercy that he was asking for. But you need to also know David also received the justice, except in a different way. The justice that David deserved did get paid. It just didn't get paid by David. And it didn't get paid right then. It actually got paid by God himself. A thousand years later, a thousand years from the time that Psalm 51 was written, God would send his own son, Jesus Christ, to make the full and final payment that David's sin demanded and that your sin and my sin demanded. When God would send his own son to die in the executioner's chair on the cross where David should have died, where you and I should have died for our sin. It's what Paul meant in Acts 17 when he said, God is able to overlook times of ignorance up until the time of the cross. It's what what Paul meant in Romans 3 when he said there was the forbearance of God to pass over former sins up until the time of the cross. His justice, God's justice is there towards sin. It was just being stored up so that it could be emptied in full on the one who would take the substitutionary place for us. Jesus would go to the cross as a substitute for David. And he would go to the cross as a substitute for you. And he would go to the cross as a substitute for me and my sin. And he would absorb the wrath, the just wrath of God for our sins on that cross. And did you know that David was actually trusting in that? 
Now, he didn't know the name Jesus. He didn't know exactly how it'd be carried out, but he knew that a Messiah would come and do this for him. When he confessed in Psalm 16, David said, God, I know that you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You're not gonna sentence me over to death. I know this because you're not gonna allow your Holy One. And he wasn't talking about himself. He's talking about his Messiah. You're gonna allow your Messiah to not undergo decay. David knew there was a Messiah who was gonna come and pay for the crimes he had committed and yet find some sort of resurrection, some sort of life from the dead and not undergo decay. David was trusting in that for the forgiveness of his sin and the justice that was deserved. And on this side of the cross, that's our trust as well. We realize those same four things that David is pleading for is exactly what Christ has provided. Mercy, forgiveness, cleansing, and restoration. When it comes to mercy, Isaiah 53 promised one day a Messiah would come who would take our sin and lay it upon a Messiah. He would absorb that just wrath for us. Therefore, what was owed to us could be withheld. That's mercy. We know that Romans 3 talks about how Jesus became our propitiation. That's just a big fancy word for he satisfied the justice of God that we deserved. I think it's interesting when you study Romans, the first, the first 11 chapters are all revolving around the implications of what Christ death and resurrection have accomplished for us. And when you get to Romans 12, after 11 chapters of walking through the implications of the cross, Paul summarizes everything that Jesus did on the cross in one word, mercy. In view of God's mercy, that's what Jesus did for us. He took what we deserved and gave us what we didn't. And so there is mercy given through Jesus Christ on the cross. And there is forgiveness. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 answers David's plea that his sins would be blotted out. The debt would be canceled. When it says this, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your own flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Then he set it aside and he nailed it to the cross that we have been forgiven. Our debt has been cleared. We no longer stand guilty before God because of what Jesus did for us. And that was granted to David's account. And then he provides cleansing. First Corinthians nine, or first Corinthians six, rather, after listing out all the kinds of sins that keep us from the presence of God, Paul then says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were washed. He says, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like he cleansed you. He has washed us whiter than snow. He's given us a new heart through the Holy Spirit. That's not just a second chance, but a brand new heart cleansed in full before God. And that ultimately Titus, Paul said to a young pastor named Titus in Titus 3, 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration. This is what has happened through the cross and by the spirit. And then lastly, Jesus through his work on the cross has brought us restoration and reconciliation. Paul said to the Colossians in chapter one, you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, just like David. Oh, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death 
in order to present you blameless before God. He's brought you in a relationship. Romans 8 says he's adopted you now as sons and daughters. We're in the family of God, restored and whole. Only the work of Jesus can do this. All this has been given to us in Christ. And when that happens, when you receive his grace by faith, and it transforms and it changes you, and you go from the pardoned criminal to the liberated one son and daughter in Jesus Christ, the only natural response that should come after that, and this is the fourth movement you see in Psalm 51, is repentance that comes in the form of praise and proclamation. Go back to Psalm 51, we'll close here. Notice the praise and the proclamation, verse 14 and 15. David confesses, he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, which he did. And he says, and then my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. That is what should happen. The natural response in a human being who's had their debts forgiven should utter out an ultimate worship for who God is and what God has done. This is instinctive within us everywhere we go. It's the reason why we cheer at sporting events when our favorite team scores and wins and we show a visceral reaction of praise because of victory. This is what happens if you watch Just Mercy or read the book, when an innocent man accused of a crime he did not commit is finally vindicated and released and the utter emotion that's in that hallway when they're walking out and being greeted by family who hasn't seen them in years. The tears of joy, the praise and celebration that comes from being liberated. Here, a pardoned criminal is turned into the worship leader of Israel who cannot help but sing the song of forgiveness. This is what every Christian should be. This is why when we gather, Lord willing, sooner than later, why singing is so important, to sing and utter the praises of God for the deliverance that he's given us. And notice it also turns to proclamation, verse 13. David promises, God, if you would forgive me, then I'm going to teach transgressors your ways and sinners will run to you. David promises, as a sinner who deserved death but was given life, I will spend the rest of my days in service to the men and women around me under the service of God. I will seek to steward the story of the folly of my own sin and the fullness of your grace so that others can taste what I've tasted. And that's exactly what repentance looks like for us. Not just receiving this grace to ourself, but actually going and giving it away. That's what Paul's talking about to the Corinthians. If we receive this vertical reconciliation, now let's go extend it horizontally and draw other people into the forgiveness and grace that Christ has to offer. This is what it means to testify to what God has done. So church, do you see the importance of Psalm 51 and the importance of Psalm 32, why it's here. David is such an example that God puts before us of his grace and what, what he can do with a man who started out as a man after God's own heart, but then tumbles and blows it big time. And the extent of David's sin, but yet the extent even deeper of God's grace that we might confess our sin, be honest with our sin, be broken and contrite within, plea for God's mercy and then run to the cross so that we can receive the fruit of what Christ has done for us and then spend the rest of our days telling others how it can come their way as well.
This is what's here for us. Psalm 51, by the way, is proof to those who blow it big time. It's proof to you who've bottomed out that God is not a God of condemnation. He's a God of restoration. And in the cancel culture that is so dominant in our world today, Psalm 51 stands against that even those who've blown it big time, God is not in the business of trying to cancel the person. Only through the work of the cross, he's seeking to cancel out the sin, to cancel out the penalty of sin and give us a new start and a new life. God is a God of grace. And I'm not here just teaching Psalm 51 to you academically. I'm telling you, I've tasted it myself. As a man who spent the first half of my life running from God, compromising in my immorality, spitting at the face of God, mocking his name through my evil deeds, moving from woman to woman to woman to try to satisfy my own flesh at the expense of God's holiness and feeling the weight of that shame and that guilt, I am standing here before you telling you, I have run to the cross, I have tasted his forgiveness and I have been set free. I do not know where you're at right now. I don't know where you've run. I don't know how far you think you are, but none of you are too far from the arms of God. And if you are willing to get honest with your sin, to come out of the darkness and bring your sin into the light and own it and not worry about the consequences, but simply worry that you are made right with God, there is arms of forgiveness and grace that have been purchased for you through the cross that is yours and it can liberate you. Oh, taste and see, church. The Lord is good. Let's run to his mercy. Father, we thank you for Psalm 51. Thank you for Psalm 32. Thank you that you included this in the canon of scripture. The fact that you and your divine purposes would take the darkest night of a man's soul and this information about an affair and a murder that if any of us committed would want that to be hidden from anybody and you made it not only part of scripture that would be read, but you used it as a song that the entire people of Israel would sing. It's just simply testimony that nothing, there's no wickedness out there that can out your grace. You are a God of forgiveness. But God, may that sober us up. Not that we would pursue failure, pursue evil and pursue licentiousness in our life, but God, that simply we can see that when we do fail, you're a God who can redeem it, unlike anything else out there can. Help us at Northway to be a people who are honest with our sin, who do not hide it, but bring it to you so that it may be forgiven, so that we may be redeemed and spend the rest of our days pointing others to the same hope that is in Jesus Christ. We pray this, God, for your glory, for our good, in Jesus' name, amen.